This is such a remarkable story, our Father. The familiarity with it might might have hardened ourselves to the significance of it. Perhaps not hardened, but perhaps we're just apathetic. It's just the story of Jesus' birth. But Father, there is an eternal treasure of truth in this story. There is a weight of theology that is hidden here that is the means for our eternal joy and it will become our eternal joy as well. And Father, as we look at this story this morning, would you give me clarity to explain it rightly and would you give us hearts to hear it, hearts that love to hear the story of Jesus and might we be changed by the story of Jesus. Would you guide our worship, guide our instruction, guide our understanding of this story, we pray in Christ's name. The cause of this story, the pinnacle of this story, the reason for this story, the joy of this story, in His great name we pray. Amen. Earlier this year, Prince Harry and Duchess Meghan Markle had a baby. Perhaps you heard of it. If you, if you didn't, that just means you don't have a teenage girl in your house. And while babies are born every second of every day around the world, this birth particularly captured the attention of followers around the world. And like many other parents today, when this baby arrived, it was, its arrival was announced first by Harry and Meghan on social media, of course, because doesn't everybody use Instagram, including the Prince of England. And then Buckingham Palace got involved with its official announcement. And a framed declaration was brought out of the privy purse door. I thought, what is a privy purse door? It's basically where the accountant lives at Buckingham Palace. Um, it is brought out of the privy purse door at Buckingham Palace, carried across the forecourt. And if you've ever seen pictures, that's a, a massive court uh, at Buckingham Palace and placed on an ornate golden easel. In case you missed it, there it is. And there it remained for 24 hours to announce and proclaim the child's birth. The pronouncement read this way, The Queen and Royal Family are delighted at the news that Her Royal Highness, the Duchess of Sussex, was safely delivered of a son at 0526 a.m. today. Her Royal Highness and her child are both doing well. Now, Regine and I sent out birth announcements, but, I mean, that's a birth announcement, don't you think? But you might notice that there was something missing in the birth announcement. Not only were... Prince Harry and Meghan Markle not named, but the baby wasn't named either. That's because he didn't have a name yet. And the name showed up three days later. And after they first um, revealed the name to the queen, then they could reveal it to everyone else. And the child's name is Archie Harrison Mountbatten Windsor. There's a mouthful. 
What was interesting about his name is his parents, because he is seventh in line to get to the throne and exceedingly unlikely that he would ever get to the throne, they want him to have a very ordinary kind of life. So they have not yet given him a title. He could have become, by title, the Earl of Dumbarton, or he could have become Lord Archie Mountbatten Windsor, but instead he is the simple and humble Master Archie Mountbatten Windsor. And there certainly was a tremendous amount of fuss over little royal Archie when he was born. Indeed, I suspect that there was far more fuss over him than any of our children when our children were born. What's interesting, though, is not only was royal Archie made more of a fuss over than any of our children, he was made more of a fuss over than the the royal, the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ, when he came. What's interesting about the story of Jesus Christ's advent is that the advent and life of Christ are the most remarkable story in the history of the world. Christ's advent surpasses creation. It surpasses the coming wrath of God. It surpasses the, the worldwide flood in the day of Noah. It surpasses any of the miracles that Jesus did while he was on earth, like feeding the 5,000 or raising Lazarus from the dead. But, but his, his story, for all of its wonder and all of its glory, is told in remarkable simplicity. There's a simplicity here that perhaps is only surpassed by the simplicity of the crucifixion and resurrection accounts. Remember what it says about the crucifixion? They crucified him. There there, there is a weight of theology behind that statement. And then the resurrection, he is not here, the angels declared. And so the arrival of Jesus is told in a similar manner of simplicity. Says one writer about the simplicity with which he was spoken of in Luke's account. Most regal figures are born with great ceremony and celebration, but Jesus' birth is as average as it comes. Don't miss the wonder of what has taken place in the advent of Jesus Christ because of the averageness and the simplicity and the ordinariness of the language in which the story is told. It is no ordinary story. It is the most extraordinary story in all of history. Luke will give us the account in verses 1 through 20. And what he would say is this. The average birth of Christ contrasts with the exalted position of Christ. It is it is one of the most understated, perhaps the most understated statement in all of Scripture apart from the crucifixion and resurrection of our Savior The average birth of Christ, the ordinariness of Christ's advent is in direct contrast to the exalted nature of who he is. In Luke's account, in verses 1 to 20, we will see the progression of Christ in the, excuse me, the progression of the revelation of Christ in three stages. We will see the incident, we will see the interpretation, and we will see the imperative that flow from this story. And then we will see the first two of these this morning. My goal was to get through all three of them. I didn't think I could preach 20 verses in one Sunday, and I can't. Uh, But we are going to do 14, and then we'll look at the last of those, the imperative that comes from Christ's birth on Tuesday evening. Here we will see 
the incident, first of all, in verse seven, verses 1 to 7, the incident, a child is born. This is the story. This is the basics of the story. What's going on when Christ comes? What are the circumstances of His coming? And there are a number of, of circumstances around His birth and His coming. First, we find the international circumstance. The international circumstance. That's given to us in verses 1 and 2. For all of the simplicity of this story, there are, there are complexities behind the story, weaving a tapestry of beauty, but with the complexity that only God could design and manipulate. Now, as the story begins, you will remember, and this is brought up in verse 4, that Joseph and Mary are in Nazareth. That's where they're living. And they need to get, according to Micah chapter 5, they need to get to Bethlehem for the fulfillment of the Messiah's birth to to come to fruition. How is God going to do that? He will move nations in order to get Mary and Joseph from Nazareth to Bethlehem. It tells us in verse verse 1, of chapter 2. Now in those days, a decree went out. In those days, in which days? Well, the days that he's already been talking about, that's the events of chapter 1. And chapter 1, of course, tells us about the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist to Zacharias and Elizabeth. It tells us of the announcement of Christ to Mary and about, about Mary's visit to Elizabeth. Uh, uh, in response to the news that, that uh, John the Baptist would be born to them as well. And all that is taking place, chapter 1 verse tells us, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. So, so in chapter 2, um, Luke is telling us all, all that is about to happen in chapter 2 is happening at the, at the same time or is the result of the things that happened in chapter 1. But, but even more than that, he's reminding us that all of this is under the auspices and under the, under the timeline of Herod as ruler over Judea. Now, Herod was an Edomite. He would die a little bit, day, a little bit after Christ's birth. And he was a vassal of the Roman Empire. So he, he did not rule on his own. He ruled under the authority of the Romans who had placed him there. And because he was a, a Roman emissary, if you will, the Jews absolutely hated him, and they hated the Rome that he served. Um, what's interesting is that while Herod is ruling, notice, notice what Luke says in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar... Augustus. Now, you would have expected that Herod would be the one, because Herod is the one who's ruling over Judea at the time, but Herod doesn't send this edict, but, but Caesar Augustus does. Now, Caesar Augustus is simply a title that means something like the revered emperor. His actual name was Gaius Octavius. He was um, adopted many years earlier by, by Julius Caesar, and then when Julius Caesar died, there was... Um, significant amount of political maneuvering and infighting, and it took a number of years, but finally the adopted son, uh, Gaius Octavius, whom we know here as Caesar Augustus, took the throne in following after Julius Caesar. And he is the one that presented this edict. Now, ordinarily, Herod would have sent out this edict, but around 8 uh, BC, he had lost favor with Rome. So he was... He was, um, he was looked at with some skepticism by Rome. He'd lost favor with Rome. He, he was being treated more as a vassal and a slave and servant of Rome than he was being treated as being autonomous and having his own authority. 
And about that same time, a few years later, around 4 or 5 B.C., Herod became ill and it became obvious that, that he wasn't going to make it. And so not only did Rome distrust him, but now all of his sons start maneuvering themselves to take his place when he dies. And so he's got maneuvering on top of him and he's got maneuvering below him as people are are fighting for his position. And because of that, Octavius was looking at this circumstance and saying, you know, Herod's about to move off. I'm finally going to get rid of Herod. And um, I need to find out what I have in Palestine, in Israel, and I need to... I need to um, see what kind of tax base I have there. And so he issues this edict uh, that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. Now, this census was for the purpose of taxation. He wants to find out who's there, what they have, and how much money he can get from them. What's notable about that is that Rome is issuing the edict and not Judea. And the significance of that is that Rome based its tax system on owned property that is land. And so if someone was going to go and register, they had to go to the place where they owned the land. In in uh, Joseph's place, a case, that meant that he needed to go to Bethlehem because that's where his family land was. We'll see that in verse 4. If Judea had issued the edict and not Rome, they wouldn't have had to travel because they based their taxes on personal possessions. And they could have evaluated that from Nazareth. There would have been no need to go to Bethlehem. But God, in order to fulfill Micah chapter 5, needs Joseph and Mary in Bethlehem. And so not Herod, but Caesar issues an edict for taxation, and now everybody needs to move. And what we see in the ordering of these events is the power of the sovereign hand of God to accomplish His purposes. Over the changing power structure of Israel, the strained relations between Rome and Herod, the timeline of the census, and we think that probably there was some sense of urgency that perhaps there was an end point to this census, kind of like our April 15, you got to turn in your numbers by April 15 or you're going to face penalty from the government. Similarly, there seems to be some kind of timeline because why else would Joseph have traveled with Mary when she was so close to giving birth except that there was some end point and he needed to meet, meet that end point in order to get in and pay his taxes or be registered to pay his taxes. And God is orchestrating all of those events to get his people where they need to be to accomplish the fulfillment of his prophecy. Says one commentator, the fiat of an earthly ruler can be utilized in the will of God to bring about his more important purposes to fruition. What we find here is an example of Proverbs 21.1. The heart of a king is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He moves or turns it wherever he wishes. So God is orchestrating kings and rulers and authorities thousands of miles away to accomplish his purposes for his people. And friend, that, that also means that Christ, excuse me, that God having this unique power and His unique sovereignty over all things, friend, He can be trusted. The one, the one who moves the heart of kings and the one who knows every sparrow in every tree 
knows your circumstances and you can trust Him wherever you are and in whatever circumstance you are. There's another significant component to this story. It's not just the international circumstance, but it's the historical background. We see that in verses 3 and 4. Everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. It denotes this, this significant movement of people trying to get where they needed to be at the appropriate time. Everyone was moving, each. So everyone and each, there's, there's this massive movement around the, the country of Israel to get everyone where they needed to be. And for Joseph, verse 4, this means that he needed to go to Bethlehem. Now, as we look at verse 4, I want you to notice two particular phrases. Joseph went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea. Now, watch this, to the city of David. Now, now look at me. If I say, um, I'm going to go to Israel, and actually I am in February, I'm going to go to Israel, and I'm going to go to the city of David. You're going to assume I go where? Now, don't read the text. Where, where do you think I'm going to go if I say I'm going to, I'm going to David's city? Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? Because that's where he ruled. That's where he reigned. That's where he lived. But, but here it's identified, the city of David is identified as Bethlehem. Why? Because First Samuel 17 tells us that that's where David was born. And that's where David was not only born, but that's where he was raised. It's in the, in the region around Bethlehem where David was tending to the sheep. And so when we've got the, the sheep herder stories and, and the brothers trying to find David and uh, looking for David when he is uh, announced as king or anointed as king, it's in that region that they were searching for him. So Bethlehem, while we think of Jerusalem as being David's city, Bethlehem is also David's city. And what's significant about that? Well, what's significant is that Because it's David's city, those who are from David's line, when they get to be identified with David, now they have to go to Bethlehem. And guess who is from the lineage of David? Joseph. Notice the end of verse 4. Because he was leaving Galilee, leaving Nazareth, going to Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David. A thousand years prior... God has David born in Bethlehem. And then subsequent to that, makes the prophecy about the coming of the Messiah from Bethlehem. And then he has Joseph born into the Davidic line so that when Joseph has to register for this taxation, he has to go to Bethlehem. God is weaving with all this intricacy all the details of of history and time to get the Messiah where he needed to be to fulfill the prophecy that was made of him. That's part of the historical background. There's also a a birth family background, if you will. Now notice verse 4. Joseph went up from Galilee because he was of the house and family of David. Joseph has to go. To Bethlehem. He's got no choice. April 15 is coming, if you will, and he's the breadwinner, and he's got to turn in his taxes or register for taxes. And notice, though, in verse 5 it says, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him. 
So Joseph leaves and he takes Mary with her, with him. Why does he take Mary? Because Mary does not need to go. There is no compulsion for Mary to go because she didn't own land. As a woman, she couldn't inherit family land. She had no right to family land, though she was of the line of David. And that's where her family line was. She wasn't a landowner. She didn't need to register for the taxation. And yet it says that, that Mary went along with him. So, so why did she travel with him? Well, the text seems to give us a little bit of a hint to that. Verse 5, to register along with Mary who was engaged to him. Now, under Israelite practice, she wasn't only engaged, but, but he, would, he and she would already be seen as married. Though they had not consummated the marriage, they had made such a commitment to each other that they would already be considered to be married even though they had not yet come together in marriage. So it is appropriate that those who are married or considered married would travel together. Moreover, Joseph also had had a revelation from the angel and and he knew of what was coming and he certainly knew of the significance of the birth of Christ. And wouldn't he want her to be with him when the baby is born? Because he's the husband. And secondly, he knows this is no ordinary kind of birth. This is a remarkable birth, a compelling birth. And he wants to be there for that. And this is is pure conjecture, but I think it, it makes sense. Frankly, there's no reason for Mary to stay in Nazareth. She would face later, and we will see this in John chapter 8, she will later face gossip and whispers about her life. She will, she will face all kinds of backbiting talk behind her about how Jesus was born in an illegitimate way. And by the way, if Jesus is born illegitimately, what does that say about her and what she was doing? And and there's every reason to think that this young girl who was in the betrothal period to Joseph, and the whole point of the period is to find out, has everybody been faithful? And now she shows up pregnant. Don't you know, everyone was saying, hey, have you heard about Mary? Why would she stay in Nazareth? Who would she go to in Nazareth? Why would she have wanted to stay there and face those kinds of questions? She had a husband who understood her and was compassionate, it's understandable that she would want to be with him. She wasn't compelled to go. But the very circumstances, not only, not only culturally, not only politically, but familially, are driving her to Bethlehem with Joseph. And then notice this, verse 6, It is while they were there that the days were completed for her to give birth. Isn't that an interesting way to say it? The days were completed for her. If if we were saying it, we would say something like, um, her pregnancy ended, or more likely we'd say, she gave birth. And we'd put the emphasis on what she does. She gave birth. It was her pregnancy. And yet the text, the text has behind it this picture that there is someone in the background who is moving and orchestrating and designing and someone else who is making all of the events come together at the appropriate time. And and it is while they were there, after they got to Bethlehem, after they got to Bethlehem where Micah chapter 5 could be fulfilled, it is then and only then that this person, this God who is behind the scenes orchestrating, brings everything 
to fruition at the exact moment. The, the birth of Christ occurred in the fullness of time, Paul will say in Galatians chapter 4. And this is, this is the family into which Jesus Christ is born by the design, the purpose, the plan, the intention of God the Father. Says John MacArthur about the family into which Christ was born. Though they must have suffered tremendously from the lies and innuendo of cruel gossip mongers, Joseph and Mary were steadfast. They probably didn't understand the fullness of God's plan, but they followed unwaveringly. They were ideal earthly parents for God's only begotten Son. And friends, all of that leads us to one of the most astounding verses in Scripture, and that is verse 7, the birth of Christ. Verse 7 is, along with the statements about the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, perhaps the most understated verse in Scripture. God, infinite, eternal, transcendent, spiritual, disembodied, omnipresent, majestic God appears in bodily form. The infinite takes on a finite body. The eternal becomes subject to time. The transcendent becomes touchable. The spiritual is embodied. The omnipresent is localized in Bethlehem. The majestic God becomes, quote-unquote, common. The Creator becomes part of creation. And all of that is woven into that little statement, she gave birth to us for her firstborn son. <laughs> is that understated? Yeah, just a tad. Luke emphasizes here, that Mary gave birth to her firstborn son. That implies a number of different things. It means that she had other children, so Jesus is the firstborn among other sons. And we know he had other siblings, uh, brothers, um, as well as uh, a sister. We know that from Luke chapter 8, verse 19 and 20, among other passages. His mother and brothers came to him. And they were unable to get to him because of the crowd. And it was reported to him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. So this is, this is telling us that, that while Jesus um, had a remarkable birth, was conceived in a supernatural way, that Jesus, or Jesus had other siblings that were conceived in a natural and normal way and there was nothing unusual about their advent and their coming. So Christ, excuse me, um, it means that Mary was not, as some will teach, a perpetual virgin. It means that she was the mother of Jesus through the virgin birth, but that the rest of her life she conceived and had children in very normal ways. Though used uniquely by God, she was just as much human as any other person, and she also was subject to the Adamic nature and she was in need of as much redemption as any other person. Listen to what she herself says in Luke 1, 46. Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. She needs redemption. She needs salvation. And she was saved by Christ, her Son. So Luke emphasizes that Mary gave birth to her firstborn son. She has, she has other children. It also means that Jesus is the firstborn and that he has all of the privileges that come to the firstborn under the law. 
So he is set apart to God, dedicated to God as the firstborn. And he needs to be redeemed from that dedication to the law um, and, and, and to carry out the Levitical practices. And he's redeemed by a sacrifice that's given. We see that in chapter 2, verses 22 and following. So, so he, is, he is under the law as a firstborn, committed to priestly service, but he's redeemed out of that as a firstborn. He's also firstborn in that he has all of the rights and privileges that come to the firstborn and all of the inheritance that comes through the family to the firstborn. So he has exalted position within the family, but it goes beyond that, doesn't it? Because he is not only the firstborn of Mary and Joseph, or not just the firstborn of Mary, rather, to say it more correctly theologically, but he's firstborn in another way. In another way, Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And that last little phrase gives us a hint as to what it means for Christ to be the firstborn of all creation. It means that that He is before all things, He is above all things, He is beyond all things, He is supreme above all things, all things are for Him, all things are created by Him, all things are created for His glory, He is supreme. The writer of the Hebrews will say in Hebrews chapter 2 that he is our brother. But he's a different kind of brother, isn't he? I mean, I've got a brother. And I'm the firstborn. And I will grant you, there is a chasm between us. I mean, I am the firstborn. That's a a joke, by the way. (laughs) But there's an infinite chasm between us and the firstborn who is Christ. He supersedes us in every way imaginable. And Luke, when he tells us that Mary gives birth to her firstborn, Jesus, it's just a reminder that Christ is above all things. And notice, notice that this one who is so supreme, so exalted, the one who created all things, the one who is supreme above all things, who is majestic, we'll see in a moment that he is Lord. Notice how he's cared for. And she wrapped him in claws and laid him in a manger because there is no room in the inn. Everyone's moving. Everyone's trying to get positioned to where they need to be. Um, places where they would normally go when they're traveling. They're all filled up. Perhaps Joseph and Mary got there a little bit late because of her condition and travel was a little bit slower. So the typical places that they would go for lodging, there were no places. And so they had to go the, the only place they could go and they went to the place where those who were in the inn would put their their cattle. And then notice that when Jesus was born, what happened to him? She wrapped him in cloths. Now, I've, I've, I was in the room when both of our children were born. And when the children were born, I didn't do anything except stay out of the way. 
And I can assure you, Regine wasn't doing anything at that moment either. But we had attendants and doctors and nurses and people who were scurrying and they, they took those babies and man, things started flying and happening and they knew exactly what to do. You notice the text? And she wrapped him in claws. Mary. I didn't ask Ray Jean this morning, but um, I suspect she really wasn't in much condition to wrap up Emily and Elizabeth when they were born. It points to the solitariness. They are all alone. They've left their family. They've traveled to a distant place. They're alone among strangers and there is no one there to help. We're going to get a picture in a, little, in a moment about another location where there's all kinds of stuff happening. But in Bethlehem, at that stable, it's quiet. There's no fanfare. There are no trumpets blowing. There are no angelic appearances, no heavenly visions, no heavenly manifestations. It's just Joseph and Mary and the baby, and you have to feel their solitude. And they wrapped him. They wrapped him. I'm getting ahead of myself. Hold that thought. As we look at these verses, what we want to find is that um, that we have here a reminder of the genuine humanity of Christ. We defend rightly the deity of Christ. We should defend the deity of Christ. In three and a half months, as we come to Easter, everybody is going to be in the world, is going to be seeking to destroy and disauthenticate Christ's deity. And we do well to affirm Christ is fully God. But friends, it is also just as critical that we recognize that Jesus Christ is truly man. This was, this was not a kind of a birth. This was genuine birth. This was genuine humanity that was being born. And that is critical because with His deity, He now can stand, or excuse me, with His humanity, He can now stand in our place. He can absorb God's wrath for us. And and friends, as a man, He also can fulfill the law. It doesn't do us any good if He fulfills the law as deity and not a man, because that couldn't be imputed to us. Only a man who fulfills the law of God can impute that law, that righteousness to us. So He needs to be both deity and man. And this text reminds us He is genuine, true man. And it reminds us as well that He came on a mission to humbly serve. He will say in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. He came to serve. He washed feet and associated with the disenfranchised and touched the untouchable and died on a cross. And He did that out of His humble manhood. And we, we know all these things about, are true about Christ. What does God say about the advent of Christ? Have you ever wondered, 
What was God thinking? What was heaven thinking about Christ's incarnation? Well, the text tells us. So we see in verses 1 to 7 the incident, the child is born. Now notice in verses 8 to 14 the interpretation of the incident. The child is the Lord of glory. The child is the Lord of glory. Lest we think that that this account is just another birth announcement of just another baby. God gives us meaning and interpretation through through the account of the angels with the shepherds. And and notice as we come to this story in verse 8, the recipients of of the announcement that is given in verse 8. So so verse 7 ends on something of a note of somberness and quietness. I'm not quiet in that Jesus wasn't crying. I think Jesus was fully man, which means as a baby when he was hungry, he communicated the way any baby can only can only communicate, and that is he cried. Of course he cried, and of course there was that kind of sound in that stable that night. But there there was there was a sobriety and a, a quietness in that there's no one else to help. There's no one else talking, there's no one else affirming. It's just Mary and Joseph alone with eternal God. But there's something else going on in that area. Notice verse 8. In the same region, so nearby, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping over, keeping watch over their flock by night. So there, there's some shepherds working. We're, we're, we're so familiar with this story that we don't think about the unique aspects of it. But this was as unlikely a group for an appearance by an, to, uh, to receive the appearance of an angel as any other kind of a group. The shepherds were among the most despised people in Israel. They were despised because, frankly, they were just dirty. And you think about what they had to do in taking care of lambs and all of that entailed. And, uh, and think about the fact that at this particular season, that was, they were probably in lambing season, so, so all that that takes in order to take care of making the sheep deliver the lambs and caring for the lambs and caring for the sick. And, and there was blood and there was stuff all over and all over them. And so they were, they were not only considered dirty, but they were, they were by law considered unclean. And they're perpetually unclean because they're always with these animals and they've always get, got to be getting cleansed under the law. And so they're just, they're just, the kind of people you don't want to associate with. And then on top of that, they had this reputation for for confusing the difference between the words mine and thine, which is to say that they didn't see much of a distinction, and if it's thine, it's mine, it was the attitude. In fact, it was so widespread, this this um, recognition or this um, this accounting of, of, of or consideration of of what shepherds were like, that they were unable, they were, they were disallowed from giving testimony in a court of law because they were so untrustworthy. You can't, you can't trust the testimony of a shepherd. And they were also uneducated, considered ignorant. In most people's minds, as someone says, shepherds were like gypsies, vagrants, and con men, all rolled into one. And it is to these that the announcement is made. Now notice, notice verse 9. The angel is standing before them. Notice the next phrase, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Friends, it's been 500 years 
since the glory of God was evident in Israel. The glory of God departed from the temple around 500 B.C. because of the rebellion and disobedience of the people of Israel. And they were sent into captivity, first to Assyria and then to Babylon. God's glory has left. And this is the first time they've seen the glory of God since then. And to to whom is God's glory revealed? Shepherds. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, other religious leaders, the wealthy had to be thinking, are you serious? Shepherds? The glory of God? Yes, friends. Because the gospel and God's glory comes to those who are needy and broken and weak and filthy. Like you and me. Friends, this is, this is hopeful that God's glory appears to the shepherds because I need the appearance of that glory just as much as they did and I am nothing beyond them. I am not better than them. I am just as needy and His glory and what we'll find, His gospel is just as available to me as it was to them. And it isn't, isn't it interesting, this is a complete aside, really it doesn't have much to do with the message other than to note this. Isn't it interesting that these despised people, that's also what God calls His priests in the Old Testament. They're shepherds for Israel. It's what the elders are in the New Testament. They're shepherds to God's people. It's what Christ Himself was. He is the good shepherd And it is what God in the fullness of His Trinity is. Psalm 23. He is the shepherd of His people. And isn't that interesting that God identifies Himself with the most despised to reveal His glory to the greatest effect? Oh, friends, this is a reminder that God takes the despised and loves them. God makes the useless to be useful. He takes the devalued of the world and He makes them valuable. That was the hope of the shepherds. And friends, that's our hope as well. I want you to notice something else that's going on in this story. The family, Mary and Joseph, was expecting the birth of Jesus. They'd had nine months to prepare or something along that order. They'd had the revelation from the angels. They had... They had the nine months to get themselves mentally ready and spiritually prepared for it. They were anticipating. Verse 9 is completely unexpected. It drops in from nowhere. Verse 8, the shepherds are just out in the fields. They're doing their thing. Undoubtedly, because it's lambing season, some of them were probably trying to help a sheep deliver a lamb. Others were probably bundled up trying to stay warm. Others, perhaps, looking out for predators that might be coming against the sheep. Others, perhaps, thinking, I just I just want to get through this night. I just want to get home and get in my bed and get some rest um, when someone else can t- come and take this duty for me, I just need some sleep. I am so tired trying to stay awake through the, the length of the night. And then verse 9, And the angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. Earlier earlier this morning, I, I um, came up behind someone and just kind of gave them a big bear hug from behind, and I guess I was being stealthy, which is not my normal mode of doing things. And he didn't hear me coming, and he jumped. Who is that? 
Friends, don't hear, I was mildly startled by the appearance of the angel. They were absolutely terrorized. They had no reason at all to expect anybody is going to come, certainly an angel from heaven. They could have not ever possibly understood that it would come. And the suddenness is stark. And not only angel, but now here is the outshining of God's glory, the manifestation of everything that God is as it is revealed in the shining of His light. It's no wonder that it says at the end of verse 9, they were terribly frightened. Absolutely, they are terrorized. And and, and don't forget, you know, you're going to go to some shop this week and you're going to see an angel and it's kind of this cute little curio and you say, oh, wouldn't that look nice on the shelf? Listen, nobody in Israel had nice nice little curios of angels sitting on a shelf. Because for them, an angel meant death. So when the angel of the Lord appears in Egypt, he kills the firstborn. When, when John stands before the glory of God and he sees the fullness of God's glory in Revelation 1, it says he falls on his face like a dead man. Moses, Exodus 3, is terrorized. Isaiah, chapter 6, terrorized. Nobody Nobody saw the glory of God and said, or an angel from heaven and said, Whoopee! An angel! No, no, no. They just figured they got a death sentence when they heard it. They're terrorized by this. And the angel gives an announcement. And the first thing he says is, Such grace, do not be afraid. The first thing he does is he allays their fears, just, just as he did with Zacharias and with Mary. He tells them, I'm not coming in judgment, but I'm coming with joy. Don't be afraid. In fact, not just don't be afraid, but, but stop being afraid. They're already terrorized. And he says, stop. You don't, you don't need to go there. It's not a death sentence. In fact, it's just the opposite of a death sentence. It's a proclamation of life. He says, I bring you good news. That, that's not just good news, but the word here is the word that we use for the gospel. So the angel is bringing the evangel. The angel is bringing the good news of salvation, the, the declaration of that which could save. And friends, do you notice the angel is sent from God? The angel is sent from God and he preaches the message of God. And when the message of God is preached, then they can respond in faith and believe and be saved. Does that sound familiar to you? Romans 10. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? This is exactly Romans 10, 14 and 15 being played out at the advent of Christ. God sends the angel. The angel preaches the message. The shepherds believe and they're saved. This is, this is the working out of the gospel in the lives of the shepherds. And, and notice that this gospel message, verse 10, is a good news that brings great joy. When confronted by the glory of God, men immediately understand the greatness of their sin. But where fear is great, my friends, the joy of God and the joy of the gospel are greater. When the gospel is believed, fear is replaced by fellowship. We, 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 think, of, we think of Christmas as a happy day. I'm virtually, I was going to say everyone, but, but virtually everyone is happy on Christmas Day. I mean, how can you not be happy? You've got the music and you've got the food and typically you have family around, you have gifts. And, 
and it's a celebratory time, and it's time off work, and it's it's exchange of 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 good good um, greetings to one another. And friends, those pale in comparison to the joy that comes through the good news of Jesus Christ. Because because if that's all that makes you joyful at Christmas, you really have no reason to be joyful. In fact, you should still be fearful. What the good news of Jesus Christ brings is that, is that He brings um, fellowship with Him and unity and harmony with Him. Friends, for us to be rejoicing at Christmas is not natural when we contemplate the coming of Christ. It is not natural It is supernatural because when we really rejoice, it is indicating that we have been transformed by Christ and the gospel of Christ. Christmas is only joy when it is integrally connected to Christ as the Redeemer and as the Savior. And notice notice one more thing in verse 10. I bring you good news of great joy which will be for all the people. Now we know that Christ's coming was for Israel. Zacharias would say that in chapter 1 in his song after John the Baptist's birth. He has visited us and accomplished redemption for His people. That's verse 68. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Who's that? Israel. And we know it's Israel because He says, in the house of David, His servant as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us and to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember His holy covenant with Israel. So it's the salvation of Israel. Christ comes and the forerunner of Christ come to bring about the salvation of Israel. And yet, it's more than that. So when Simeon takes Jesus a number of weeks later, in the temple and holds him, he says, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. So Simeon at the temple holds Jesus and says, I have seen the salvation of all men how all men can come to be saved. And then he emphasizes at verse 32, a light of revelation to the Israel or Gentiles? Gentiles. And then, in the parallel line, and the glory of your people Israel. It's as if he says, the salvation is for the Gentiles. Oh yeah, and Israel too. He's turned it on its head. Well friends, this is our hope that Christ, the advent of Christ, is for the salvation of all men everywhere. The announcement is rooted in a promise to Abraham, but it's also central to this story that Christ is coming as a Savior for all men, regardless of gender or race or nationality or social standing or education or anything else. Christ is for all men. And notice how he identifies, how the angel identifies Christ. For today in the city of David there has been born for you, and he identifies him in three ways, a Savior a savior. This was this was built into the very name of of Jesus. 
His name Jesus means God saves. Yeshua, Jesus, God saves. Central to his nature is the fact that he saves people. He keeps people from the wrath of God. He keeps people from his own wrath against them. And he brings them into fellowship with himself. So he saves them from himself and to himself, adopting his enemies as his sons. This is, this is what it means for Jesus to be a savior. He redeems their sins He changes them and He saves them from the ongoing effect of sin in their lives. He preserves and keeps them now and forever. So He is the Savior. Notice also verse 11. He is not only a Savior, He is the Christ. That is, He is the Messiah. He is the Anointed One. He is the One who will be the eternal King of Israel. He came to David's birth city to rule in David's kingly city. We see that in chapter 1 in the promise from the angel to Mary, chapter 1, verse 32, He will be great, speaking about Jesus, and He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give Him the throne of His father David, and He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and His kingdom will have no end. So He will assume the Davidic rule and Davidic reign over all of Israel and over all people for all time. He is the Christ. He is the King. And he is also, notice the end of verse 12, excuse me, end of verse 11, he is the Lord. He is the sovereign. He is the master. He is an infant, but he is in absolute control of everyone and everything. Even as a newborn king, as Abraham Kuyper said, there was not one atom in the universe over which he could not say, mine. It all belongs to him. Every bit of it. He is the Lord. He is every man's sovereign. If you are here this morning and you are happy about Christmas, can I just ask you why you're happy about Christmas? What is it that attracts you and gives you joy on Christmas? Are you happy for the coming of presents and the coming of meals and the coming of food and the coming of fellowship? Or are you happy because of the coming of Christ? Because joy only comes for those who are rightly related to the one who is Savior, King, and Lord. And what we all need to do this morning is just examine in our hearts, where are we? What are are we believing? What are we wanting? Who are we trusting? Is Christ my King? Is Christ my Savior? Is Christ my Lord? And friend, if, if Christ is not your King, if you are not living for Him, if He is not your Lord, if He is not ruling and master over your life, can I just give you the good news of this day? And that is that He is the Savior for all men. And you can repent and you can turn and you can believe in Him and He will save you from your sin and save you to Himself. He will save you from your sin and He will save you to a life lived righteously for His glory. He will save you for Himself. The question is, do you believe? Friend, you must believe. He is Savior. He's King. He's Lord. Now the question for the shepherds on that day, they hear this good news, And I think in verse 12, the angel is anticipating the question that must be running through their minds. If if or since this is true, we want to see him. They're going to actually say that later in this chapter. 
How are we going to know who He is? This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now there's been a lot that's been said about about the wrappings of Jesus and maybe they're related to burial cloths and so on. This is anticipating His death. Friend, I I want you to see this is just simply Jesus is is Jesus is wrapped in the typical kind of clothing that a baby is going to be wrapped in on that day. There's nothing remarkable about it. It's very typical. The only thing atypical about it is is that that the angel has just said, here is the one who is the Savior, the Christ, the Lord, and he's wrapped really typically. No royal robes, no purple robes, no purple wrappings, no purple blankets, no, no kingly place for him to stay. He's just a humble, simple baby. But frankly, that's not a, that's not a particularly good sign for the, for the shepherds because they're wanting to go and see. And, and for them to go and see this baby and the angel says, well, he's wrapped up like every other ba- baby. That would be like me saying, yes, we have a new, we, we just had our baby and you will find the baby at Harris Hospital wrapped in a blanket. Oh, that's really helpful. What was atypical here is not how the baby was wrapped. What's atypical is where the baby is placed. I haven't taken a survey of moms, but I think it's probably pretty safe that of every child that is born, at least in America, at least in our culture, that nobody takes him out to the barn and sticks him in a feeding trough. Not by choice anyway. But Mary put Jesus the only place possible, and it was in that trough. My wife wouldn't have put our girls there. Even as a new dad, I wouldn't have put our girls there. But the second person of the Trinity, the Lord God of eternity, put Himself there. Friends, I want you to see the humility of Christ, the remarkable, the remarkable, unique, unduplicated, Humility of Christ. He's in typical clothes, but he's in an atypical place. We talk about Christ's humility, but here we see it in all of its starkness. The glory of God in a cattle feeding trough. Says James Boyce, On the night the angels appeared near near Bethlehem, Caesar would have been sleeping in Rome on a golden bed beneath sheets of linen, He would have been attended by servants, protected by the Praetorian Guard and by many Roman legions. By contrast, the babe was wrapped in swaddling clothes and placed in a manger. His attendants were beasts. Here is... I got so excited I forgot to give you that. The announcement of the birth. Here is the remarkable nature of Christ's announcement. And then... I want you to see in verses 13 and 14 the affirmation of that announcement. Verse 13, And suddenly, I don't think they were beyond the first suddenly yet, and now there's another one. It's it's terrifying enough to be in the presence of one angel, and now they are in the presence of a multitude of angels of the heavenly host. The word multitude um, denotes an army. It's, it's a military term. So there's an army of angels 
They are surrounded by angels, by the heavenly host. And, and this army of, soldier, of soldiers, of angels, come in peace to declare peace. Isn't that interesting? No other army in the world shows up and says, Peace! But the army of heaven says, Here is the pathway to peace. Notice what the, what the angels say, verse 14, glory to God in the highest. They're praising God. They're, they're giving adulation to God. They do not praise Mary. They do not praise Joseph. They do not praise the manger, the shepherds, or anyone else, or anything else. They praise the glory of God. God incarnate. God, the second person of the Trinity, has taken on manhood and He has come down to earth, but there still is in heaven this triune being of God and it is worthy of all praise and glory and adulation. And the heavens want us to know that that God is glorified, God is revered, God is revealed in the Incarnation and He gets glory from them. Not only in heaven is God glorified, but notice... Also, verse 14, and on earth, peace among men. (laughs) There's peace on earth. On earth where men only resist and hate and rebel against God, there's now a potential for peace. Christ comes in peace and He gives peace. He gives peace to anyone who wants it. The Prince of Peace has come in peace granting peace to those who will believe. And that's, that's the other thing that we should notice here. And on earth, peace among men with whom He is pleased. Only those who are pleasing to God get His peace. You have to be pleasing to God. Which doesn't mean, well, i gotta, I got to try really, really hard because we have seen in Romans over and over and over again, we can't please Him. So how do you please Him? You trust in the Son whom He sent, who died on the cross to impute His righteousness to you. Only only Jesus' righteousness is pleasing to God. And when you believe in Him, you get His righteousness. And God is pleased with you. That's what Christ came to do. And He did that again for all men. Isn't that a remarkable story? I began this message by noting that, that the way the story is told is very matter-of-fact. It's very simple. It's severely understated. It, it, it's, it's the most remarkable story in the world told in such an ordinary way. And yet there is something about the story that's not understated. And that's the declaration that comes from heaven that we've just seen. Remember, remember the triumphal entry of Christ? So the last week, he's heading into Jerusalem. He's heading for the cross. But the crowds are thinking the Messiah is coming. And they're, 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 they're shouting about, about the Messiah. And they're declaring the, the presence of the Messiah. And the Pharisees are just more than a little agitated over this. And they go to Jesus and they say, Would you tell the, would you tell the crowds to stop? You remember what Jesus tells them? Luke chapter 19. I tell you, If these become silent, the stones will cry out. Somebody has to declare the majesty and the glory of Christ. 
And here is, here is in this story, the advent of Christ, Jesus alone with Mary and Joseph and no one else, just, just a bunch of animals around and all of that quietness and all of the solitude. And it is as if the heavens say, we can't be silent. And the curtain of heaven is ripped aside so that we can hear from God himself about his glory in the incarnation of Christ. Oh, it's a, it's a humble story, but it's a glorious story about the wonder of Christ, our Savior. He's bringing peace to all who will believe in Him. This is the greatest birth announcement. Our Father, we thank You for the reminder in this simple story of the greatness of our Savior and the wonder of Your provision of Him. We have the saying, someone moved heaven and earth to accomplish it. We don't have a capacity to do that. But you do. And you moved all heaven and all earth to bring about the advent of the most wondrous Savior. Oh, Father, as we come into this week, might we not overlook this story because of its ordinariness, but might we see the majesty and the wonder of God incarnate, God in human flesh, Christ as a babe, Christ as a babe who is Savior, Christ the King and Lord. It is in His wondrous name that we pray. Amen.